and I've got another breast friend of mine with me from my Dragon Boat team, and I'd like to introduce you to... My name is Deb. Hi, Deb. So you've got two Debs, double Ds here. (laughs) (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) Um, Before cancer, you were married, kids... married, and no children... I'm going to be talking about having multiple bouts with cancer, and so I have to go back about 20 years. So I was in my 40s, okay. early 40s. Okay, which is okay. This is going to be strange because actually my very first thought of cancer, I didn't even think of it as cancer because my doctor was so low key about it. I even to this day I don't even know if I would tell people I had cervical cancer, but it started with an abnormal Pap smear. Went up to my gynecologist. She took me in for day surgery, removed an a lesion that she called carcinoma in situ. Like at the time I was thinking, was it carcinoma cancer? But she never said the word cancer. And it was just, you know, a a day surgery I was done. And then after that, the follow-up was a repeat pap smear every three months for the first two years. And then when it came time for the third year, where I think I was supposed to go to six month checkups, she said, well, you know, that was a really nasty looking legion i'm gonna keep you on the three months that's the only and that's the only time she ever indicated that it was anything. so there's no treatments or anything no she just didn't follow up. no it was just cut it out and then it was just follow-up so that's okay. why again i feel like i don't in a way i didn't even think of it as cancer so i remember going through like the three years of going every three months and then i went for two years for every six months and then as somewhere between in that next year between my you know my next annual visit I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Oh, my God. So, yeah, stage four ovarian cancer. Oh, Deb, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so uh, one of those things where, I, and I remember asking my gynecological oncologist, well, like, are, is this related in any way to the other? And he's like, no, that's two completely different cancers. It's, and, mm. and in fact, after they did my surgery and sent everything to pathology, there was nothing on my cervix at all. <laughs> so, so actually, that, that treatment worked. But at the time, I remember I had a friend, and she was an older lady, who was just doing her best to convince me to get a hysterectomy at that time. And I just, well, you know, I trusted my doctor. I was like, oh, no, it's not necessary. And so, you know, looking in hindsight, had I had the hysterectomy five years earlier, they, I might have I might have even had um, ovarian at that time, but it might have been like just localized. So that was in your 40s that happened? Yeah, so by, so the cervical it must have been around 42 or something because my ovarian cancer I was diagnosed I was 48 years old and I had Oh wow. Uh, yeah, and it was uh like at, at the beginning when I first went in they ran me through a CAT scan and you know they saw you know little cancer everywhere and so they they said it'd be at least stage 3 but they wouldn't know until I had my surgery whether it was 3 or 4. And so after my surgery and everything went to pathology, came back at stage four. Oh, damn. So, yeah, so I shouldn't be here. I'm kind of... Oh, I'm you're a miracle. miracle. <laughs> you fine, <Yeah>. man. <laughs> so, wow. Wow, what a journey. Just on yeah. that at 40... How many years yes. ago was that now? So that's been 12 years, going on 13 years. Okay. So, and so. you're clean, clear and free of yes. cervical cancer? And... Yeah, the, cer- the cervical, when, they re- when I went in for my ovarian cancer surgery, basically the doctor removed everything that he said, he said anything that you don't need to live, we're going to take out. So they took out, you know, cervix and, and uterus and ovaries and, 
um, my appendix, and I even had my spleen removed. Oh my so, god! Yeah, that. and I mean it was spread everywhere. It was up into my diaphragm. It's on my liver. The cancer was. Yeah, it was in my liver. It was in my lymph nodes. It was everywhere. Oh damn! So yeah, so um, yeah, my you are a miracle. My prognosis was really poor, um, but I went through the treatments, and I'm one of them that it, it worked for. So it's just crazy. And did you of. do any chemo or radiation as well? Um, well, with ovarian, they typically typically don't give you radiation. Okay. Because, oh, it's too because, hard to reach. Well, typically it's also in multiple places. Okay. And it's, yeah, and there's so many organs in there. And um, yeah, I had to do chemo, but because I was so sick when I went in, and also I had because the surgery was so advanced surgery, difficult, you know, I had a lot of complications after my surgery. Okay. And so I really was weak. I really wasn't gaining any strength. Um, instead of holding off on the chemo, the doctor still wanted to start it within two weeks of my surgery. So they decided to give me a, a, like a low dose chemo, but yeah. give it to me on a weekly basis Okay. instead of like the once every three weeks. And so that was really pretty tough to go through that much chemo. And I just felt like I never actually was able to heal from my surgery. So I had my incision, which went from my breastbone down you know, to my pelvic bone. Basically, I had a long incision. It didn't heal properly. So I had to have that reopened and it had to be packed and I had to have a wound back on that. I had a, an abscess where my spleen had been. So I had to have a tube, a drainage tube hanging out of there. I had a pick line hanging out. So I like I was had all these tubes hanging out of me. It was horrible. I couldn't eat. I lost so much weight. At one point, I, I was on the TPN that, that they give you for total parenteral nutrition. No, because don't know what you that can't. Is. It's for people who basically can't get nutrition any other way. And uh, but if, if they feed you from a IV tube, bag yeah. through your through your pick line. And, but, and for like my first three months after my surgery, I was in the hospital more than I was out. It was it was really like the a horrible, horrible. Now, did they not keep you in the hospital they for kept any me, of that? They kept me for the first, I think maybe five days or something that, that after right after my surgery. This is something where we can get into this whole um, <laughs> is the government deciding or the insurance company deciding on your treatment. Right. Like, because in the U.S., this all happened in the U.S., my ovarian. Okay. And so, it, and I don't, and you'll hear Americans say, we don't want you know, socialized health care because we don't want the government making the decision. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're letting the insurance companies make the decision. And so after such major surgery, after only maybe five days, maybe in the hospital, I was sent home. But I was only home for a couple of days and I was right back in again. And and then I was in you know, for another five days or something, get kicked out, and I'd be right back in. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awful. And did you have insurance coverage at work? And did well, it cover? no, well, and see, this even goes back further that a couple of years before that, my husband and I had decided to quit our jobs, sell everything, and then just travel. <laughs> so, oh so, so not only was I not working, I was we were homeless at the time too because we were in transit. So. At the time I left my job with my company, I could have continued my health insurance with them, but it was very expensive. Or I just instead I went out to the internet and I bought insurance from the internet that was called International Medical Insurance. And one of the caveats was that you had to be outside of the U.S. six months of the year. And so I thought, well, you know, since we're traveling and everything, we can do that. And when I was diagnosed, that was one of my first thoughts was, 
my God, what kind of insurance do I have? Is this even going to pay? Oh my God. But they did, they actually ended up paying almost everything. Oh good. But it also was a huge, huge job for my husband to keep track of all of the insurance claims, every, the bills that had been paid, the bills that were coming in that were duplicate bills. If something was denied, we would appeal. And, you know, so that was a whole, almost a full-time job for him just to keep track of all that insurance stuff. And how did you live, like, in well, between all that? Well, we ended up we were staying at my mom and dad's house in Iowa. Okay. And so I was treated in Iowa. So in a way, sometimes I kind of wonder about that too, though. Like, was there something about being in my parents' home that helped me with my recovery? I don't really know. Something that's one of those mystical things, right? That, you know, is there something about that? But, but yeah, we, we, so we stayed, spent eight months with my parents, my poor husband <laughs> and, and my husband actually was almost a full-time nurse to me because I was like drainage tubes that had to be drained and I had bandages that had to be or wounds that had to be repacked and pick lines that had to be cleaned and you know, all oh kinds of gosh. stuff. So yeah, he spent a lot of time taking care of me and taking me back and forth to the, doc- to the doctor. And, and it's the caregiver. They're exhausted too. Yeah, just as yeah. exhausted oh, as yeah. you are. I almost right? think it might be harder because like when I was sick, you know, I was, you know, sleeping a lot and in bed a lot, you know, just, I learned, actually, this is another funny thing though, as I learned to cook by watching Rachel Ray on the Food Network. <laughs> While you were sick? Yeah. I really didn't feel like eating, but I love watching the cooking shows for some reason. But um, but I but after watching so many cooking shows, I'm like, oh, that's how you cook. that's how you do it. Because before that, you know, I was working full time, and I never was much of a cook. Like we would eat spaghetti and frozen pizzas, and you know, go off to eat and things like. I was just never much of a cook. But, um, Rachel Ray yeah. transformed you. <laughs> so then, yeah, so then after I, as I was going through my recovery after my treatment was over, I wasn't working because I didn't go back to work. So that's what I, how I spent a lot of my time was in the kitchen cooking. When you were going through this and you were recovering, this was in Iowa? Well, I was in Iowa until my treatment was over. Okay. And so our plan all along had been after we you know, finished our traveling, because we were living in the States, and, and my husband's Canadian, and, um, okay. and we had sold up everything, and we were traveling, and our plan then was to resettle in Canada, in his home country. So as soon as my treatment was over, we made a beeline to Canada and bought a house in London, Ontario, and lived okay. there for four years. And then we ended up moving to Waterloo about six, almost seven years ago. Decided that um, we wanted to travel, so um, we had a mid- midlife crisis, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's brave. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's very courageous yeah. to take that, so. and then having to deal with cancer like well, you didn't yeah. even get you didn't even get off the ground did you and oh. your travels oh yeah we did we were because we we left we did traveled um through all throughout canada the western u.s uh down through mexico central america south america oh. um and we actually our last trip was new zealand and we came home we spent four months in new zealand came home and that's when i was diagnosed with the uh, ovarian oh, cancer okay so uh Oh, so you got all your travels in? Yeah. Uh, well, well, our original plan though was then to do Africa and you know can, and keep going. Okay. But, uh, yeah, that part of it, the Africa part, got dropped. Yeah. Understandable. So you so, moved back up here into yes. Canada, London, yeah. and then KW. Yeah. And, and then what? How? Like working, well, um, living. Well, so when I, I we moved up, you know, just like after my last chemo treatment, we basically didn't even go back to my parents' house. We just, we just drove oh straight, my God. straight to Canada. 
But the, and but what I did though for a while there was I would travel back to the states to see my gynecological oncologist every three months for a while, you know, just until I got comfortable with the Canadian healthcare system. Right. And then I um, then I had a gynecological oncologist at the London Health Sciences Center. That's the great hospital. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. And so I think you know it took me a couple of years probably. So I carried my insurance there for a couple of years until I became comfortable with my. Uh, oncologists here and everything and and so dropped the u.s part and um but i kept going to see him on a regular basis and i think like after five years he would have released me but but i wasn't ready to be released you know i just in london yeah yeah okay yeah and so i kept seeing him until i was finally to the point where i was ready to i could say okay i don't need to come back because because eventually i got to the point where i just had to go back once a year and it was almost a waste of time to go back once a year because it was just a checkup. And so, so basically it was when I said, okay, I think I'm ready to be released. And he said, that's fine. You know, yeah, we don't need any more follow-up. So I have no more follow-up on my ovarian at all. During the time that I was seeing him, I did ask about getting genetic uh, testing done. So that, that's the BRCA, right? Yes. The BRCA gene. Yeah, for for the BRCA gene or BRCA. Sometimes some people call it BRCA, some call it BRCA. Okay. I never know what to call it. But that's a, it's a gene mutation that makes you predisposed to ovarian cancer and breast cancer, and so your the probability of getting ovarian cancer is something like forty percent, oh forty God. or forty five, and breast cancer is like as much as eighty <gasps> percent. Really? So, yes, it's very high. You know, and uh, I went. To, the geneticist had the genetic testing done. It came back that yes, I do have a gene mutation in my B- BRCA gene, and so they put me on the high risk breast screening protocol. And at the time, I was reading online and I would, you know, or, or participate in forums, and other women who had this gene mutation were having prophylactic mastectomies and um, or prophylactic o- removal of the ovaries and that sort of thing. And at the time, that just seemed so extreme to me, like, oh, having your breasts removed on the chance that you could get breast cancer, like Mm -hmm. it just seemed a little bit extreme. I know a lot of people think that too, when they heard about Angelina Jolie doing that, she got a lot of criticism. And then I thought, you know, and as long as I'm on this high risk screening program, I would get an MRI and a mammogram every year. And I just thought, so if anything happened, they'll catch it early. And if, if, you know, if it does start to develop and so won't, be a problem (laughs) but uh so that was three years after my ovarian cancer that i had the genetic testing Uh, oh also my uh my breast doctor she put me on an aromatase inhibitor called arimidex oh yeah but she said she said there's no nothing's been studied or proven that this is going to prevent breast cancer but it's an option if you'd like to do it and i said yes i'd like to do it so i so i was taking the arimidex I was taking all kinds of supplements and things because sometimes after cancer, you you start to think, well, what is it that I could be doing, you know, nutritionally that I should, that would help or whatever. So I was taking curcumin and all kinds of stuff um, yeah, me too. and the Arimidex and, but then getting breast, then I was diagnosed with breast cancer three years later. So six years after my ovarian, I was diagnosed with breast wow. cancer. And so I guess one of the positive things about that was I was able to just quit taking all that other stuff because I was like, well, obviously it's not working for me. So, so I was freed from that burden of having right. to take all these supplements and things. But I was really surprised though, that when I went in, well, I can tell you a little bit about that 
journey as well. Yeah. So I had my MRI and my mammogram. The breast cancer showed up on the MRI, but not on the mammogram. They brought me in for what they called an ultrasound guided biopsy. So I went in, they had took the biopsy, it came back. Because, you know, first you get that phone call, like, oh, we found something. You're like, oh, great. You know, but I went in for the biopsy, came back. They said, oh, it wasn't cancer. It was fibroids or something. Nothing to worry about. But thankfully, whoever it was that was behind the scenes reading my radiology reports just said, no, that's not consistent with what we saw on the MRI. So they brought me back in for an MRI-guided biopsy. And so it was the one where you had to go through the MRI machine, and they did the biopsy. Then they found the cancer, and it was actually stage one invasive breast cancer. It wasn't like I thought, oh, well, you know, if I'm being followed, it should just be stage zero or something. You'd think maybe, but but it was already considered invasive breast cancer, but it was local. It's still local, so it wasn't metastatic or anything. Right, okay. And it wasn't in your lymph nodes? No. Okay. Well, I don't know. Uh, not at the time I didn't know when they first okay. did the biopsy. Okay. And so so I went to see the breast surgeon and she said, well, because I told her, well, I want to just do, I want to have the prophylactic mess, or I want to have the double mastectomy then at that point, it's not prophylactic anymore. And so she said, well, yeah, we could do that, but then that takes time because we have to, like, they have to schedule with the um, plastic surgeon and the breast surgeon and all that. She said, so I'd like to just do a lumpectomy and I can get you in next week. So I said, okay. So, so my first surgery was a lumpectomy. And that, I think the pathology from that came back saying they couldn't find any, any more cancer. And so she was a bit surprised and said, well, maybe it was small enough that when they did the, the needle biopsy that, that they did with the MRI machine, maybe they got the whole cancer with that or something. So, so at the time, I didn't have to go through any more treatment, any radiation or any chemo. But I, but I said, but I'm, you know, I still want to get the the double mastectomy. Right. Oh, also, they tested the, my sentinel lymph node, and that came back negative. Okay. So, you know, that seemed like everything was okay. So then it took another six months. I went in for my prophylactic mastectomies in January of 2014, and when the the pathology came back, they had found the cancer. Oh so God. I don't really know whether. It was the cancer that was missed in a lumpectomy, or whether they really, they really did get it all out, and this was new cancer. Like I don't really know, but but I'm really glad that I followed through with right. the double mastectomy. Now prophylactic double mastectomy. mastectomy. What yes. does prophylactic mean? Oh, it means preventative. Oh, preventative. So, okay. Yeah, so it's, it's so it's for people who have not yet been diagnosed. Okay. And so in this case, I even though I'd been diagnosed, I'd had the lumpectomy, so it was still considered that prophylactic and so that's why they didn't take any additional lymph nodes okay so really i don't know on that second surgery whether there were was anything in the lymph nodes or not she didn't have me come back and do another surgery for lymph nodes or anything but um but then at that point then it was recommended even though it was very early stage because i was triple negative oh, that gosh, okay. um, that i should do the chemo okay and so then I was at that point, by that time I was living in Waterloo. So I had to be referred to an oncologist here in Kitchener. So that took a little bit of time. I had my surgery in the middle of January and I started chemo beginning of March. And so I saw, I saw the oncologist on like Monday and she had me in chemo by Friday. 
So it was that quick. Wow. And this was all post-surgery. Yeah, yeah it was post-surgery. And then because I had the mastectomies, I never had to have radiation. Okay. So I've only really had the chemo. Okay. So, so in my... Technically, I've been diagnosed with cancer four times. Oh, my so, gosh, Deb. But, uh, but I've only had the chemo twice. And so the first time, you know, with the ovarian, it was really, really difficult. And, like, I was bedridden by the end of it. I lost a lot of weight. I was really sick and all that. But then my breast cancer, oh, this is another thing that happened with my breast cancer treatment. Um, the protocol they put me on was what they call AC. I had that one, Which too. is andromycin and cyclophosphate. Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so when I went in for my first chemo treatment, I had a reaction to the andromycin. Uh-huh. And the chemo nurse said, I've been working here 10 years and I've never had anybody have a reaction to this chemo. But the minute she, this, like within seconds of her injecting that into me, I guess my face broke out and everything. Oh, and wow. she just had to stop it. And so they, then, but then they just give you more things to suppress your reaction. So I more baby aspirin, more Benadryl, and then they make you wait an hour that she tried it again, and I reacted again, and so, and I'm like, I don't have to have chemo today, and she's like, well, no, we're, you know, we're, and so they just pumped me full of more things and made me wait, you know, another hour, and so finally I did get the chemo, and then when I went back, for, and so that was then the once every three weeks, um, three, three weeks later, I went back, when I went in to, you know, get to find out about my next chemo treatment, my regular oncologist wasn't there. So I had one of the, um, a different oncologist mm-hmm. for that meeting and she approved my second treatment. Well, then the second treatment, I had a reaction and I have a feeling if my, my, my real oncologist had been there, she might've not Changed done it. it. But, yeah. but anyway, so I had two of the treatments of the andromycin, um, and the cyclophosphamide. So I had the two of the ACs, and then the next time I went in, my uh, oncologist was like, we're not giving that to you anymore, so she switched me then to a treatment called TC, which I believe is taxitier and cyclophosphamide. So I and how did you react to that, or respond to that? That, I was okay, except I would, like, for some reason, my blood counts just plummet whenever I have chemo, so I did end up in the emergency room twice. Once I was admitted to the hospital, and once I didn't, I was sent home. But they had me taking the Nupogen shots. Yes. And there is something called Nulasta, which is supposedly one that you could just have one shot and it's supposed to be good for your, till your next treatment. Yep. It didn't work for me. So I had to do the daily Nupogen shots. Oh. And personally, I think when I was breaking out in hives, I think it was because of the Nupogen. But the doctor didn't really know whether it was the endomycin or the Nupogen that was doing it. So she just switched me to a different one. Yeah, but but really, I only ended up staying overnight in the hospital, like one or two nights, which is actually pretty good. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the other time, and and also then she would lower my dose because I I don't know why it just hit me so hard, and then so I just must have that type of body that it really affects me, and and I lost my uh, some fingernails or something. I don't know if it was fingernails or toenails. Now I'm thinking back, I don't remember if it was my fingernails or toenails that I was. I remember losing something. Did you get any neuropathy or anything? No, I, I, ne- I never got any neuropathy. Okay. Anything, so. Any any other? Did you lose all your hair and everything? Oh, yeah. You yeah. did, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and actually, when I was going through my ovarian cancer, the, I remember one day I, the nurse said, oh, is this the first time you've lost your hair? And I remember thinking, oh, what do you mean the first time? <laughs> <laughs> like, are you kidding? She's like, 
some women lose their hair two or three times. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. Like, I just thought, how There's horrible is that? too much information yeah. right now, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, my so, God. Yeah, so that was the second time I lost my hair. But uh, Well, and, and also, the first time I lost my hair, I remember thinking, I don't know why this is such a big deal, because I'm fighting for my life. Who cares about hair? But, but then the second time, when I was going through my breast cancer treatment, it did mean something to me, because maybe I didn't feel like, I was as sick and, you know, fighting as much for my life or whatever. I don't know what, but it, it just was more meaningful the second time. I really now, did that. you just wait or did you shave your head early before um, your hair fell out or did I, you just uh, wait? No, I, I shaved it. You did? I, yeah. Yeah. So I, did I. Yeah. And, uh, and really that's kind of one of the things I, I, one of my lasting, cause I really don't have many lasting side effects from my treatment other than my hair is very thin. Oh, is and, that one of the side effects well, for you? Well, and it may not be even the, I don't know if it's the chemo or if it's just not having estrogen anymore. But right. Yeah, I hate having my hair so thin. But but I, I feel pretty fortunate, though, that I don't have neuropathy. or. I've heard some, some pretty, I wouldn't yeah. say tragic stories, but, you yeah. know, there are some oh, out there, I know. Oh, yeah, there's lots of different side effects you can have from just from the treatment. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I didn't yeah. have much of them either, mm -hmm. so I'm very mm -hmm. grateful. I have to tell you, though, when mm -hmm. in the losing the hair, mm -hmm. the thing that surprised me the most is I went to a meeting, a support group meeting, mm -hmm. and I said, I keep sniffling, and I don't know what's yeah. going on. And somebody said, well, you've lost your nose hair. And I went, oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, yeah, you didn't is. know nose hair was that important know, until yeah. you don't have it, I right? Exactly. I mean, I could exactly. I could deal with the eyebrows yeah. and the no hair, but that yeah. sniffling was driving me yeah. nuts. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So how yeah. long ago was that? That was... So that's been over five years. Well, this January, it'll be six years. Oh, now. congratulations. So, yeah. So and you. did you have radiation there? Did no. you have... You didn't no, because I, you had the full, had the full, full mastectomy, mastectomy, so yeah. you didn't have that. Mm -hmm. Did you have dense breasts? Is that one of them? No, I don't think I did. You don't think so, eh? Wow. So I have a question, and, I, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. if you don't want to answer mm -hmm. it, I'm fine. But how, having a mastectomy, having like yeah. a double mastectomy, having no uterus, yeah. like did you have, did you go through a grieving process? And um, I don't think I really, no, no, not really. You didn't. No, not for my breasts at all. No, no. I, no, I was ready to get rid of those babies. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to kill me. <laughs> so no. I'm going to no. get them before they get me. Exactly. Yeah. No, I had no, no, yeah, I had no sex. See, I think had I, had I been a woman who was di who just had the gene mutation, who'd never been through cancer, right. it'd be a different story. But having had been through cancer and then having even early stage getting diagnosed, like, no question, get rid of these things. And yeah. did you, you just went for the mastectomy and you were okay with everything? Oh, the, you, the recovery was fine? Oh, and... it was, at first, it was really, I was a bit scared because... When I came home from the hospital, it was so tight. My muscles around my chest were so tight. It was like having on an iron bra. And you know how, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having a bra that's really tight. But yeah. At the end of the day, you get to take it off and woo, it feels so good. Well, it was like there was no relief. It was just this really tight Is band. that because of the, the way they, was it the band, the it, actual bandage or was no, it? No, it was, it was something to do with the muscles and okay. something or other. But, and I remember reading online that people say, oh, that'll go away. Eventually your muscles will loosen up or something will loosen up and it won't be so bad. But I remember thinking for a moment, like, this is unbearable. How am I going mm. to live with this? Like having this iron bra on for the rest of my it's life. because they've cut yeah. away a lot of muscle and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, wow. Yeah. It went away. And now like, yeah. It's great now. I never have to wear a bra. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Yay! Yeah. 
one of the bonuses. Oh, yeah. And one of the things I should mention about that, too, though, is that I elected to go with the immediate reconstruction. I know some women decide to just have the mastectomies and do nothing. Women will go back and go through the process of having implants. And, you know, and just because of my history and the surgeries I had, I was like, I don't want any more. I only want one surgery. Um, I want, I don't want anything that's going to cause any complications. Right. I had enough complications from surgery, uh, you know, just whatever is the simplest. And so that's how I went into the plastic surgeon and he was like, okay, here's what I recommend. Saline implants, uh, we'll do re- immediate reconstruction and that, you know, it's just surgery, you're done. And, and that's what I went with. And I'm I knew you're happy with just, it. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty happy. Yeah. With it. I do remember though, when I went back to see my breasts, oh, before I had the surgery though, I remember saying something to the breast surgeon that, well, they'll look just like regular breasts. And she said, they'll look nothing like regular breasts. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> like that was a surprise too, you know? And so, um, so what did they look like? So I mean, they, they look like they're, because they put the implants underneath the muscle. Okay. They're, they have no cleavage at all. They're like really far apart. Okay. And so they're just like these two bumps on your chest, but at least it gives you somewhat you feel like you look normal in clothes right Um, but when you have the clothes off yeah they don't look they don't look normal not really at all no No. because I had a lumpectomy Mm -hmm. so I'm pretty uneducated Mm -hmm. in this in this realm but they so it's all the the fat and the the skin and everything on top that they remove right for the mastectomy Mm -hmm. they yes they the whole breast, the whole, all the breast tissue. They do sometimes do something called breast conserving or skin conserving okay. surgery. And sometimes they'll do nipple sparing surgery, but okay. because of being diagnosed with cancer, I think the nipple sparing was out of the question. Okay. And somehow that wasn't even an option the for me. But, um, and then, and I think for the skin one, yeah, because I was doing immediately immediate reconstruction, then they could just take out the breast tissue and put the implants in and use the same skin. Right. Whereas if you were just having the mastectomies first, you'd have to put in expanders over and over, over time the skin. the skin back out. Because so they peel the skin, right? Then remove yeah. the breast and yeah. then put the skin back. And, back. and they okay. must cut some of it away, though, if you had large breasts, yeah. you know, large breasts or something. Yeah. But, but I know that if you're going... For later on reconstruction, you have to have that skin stretched out again. Yeah, that's going to be a little uncomfortable. Yeah, and yeah. maybe it's the mus- muscle, because also they, because they put the um, implants under the muscle, muscle. It's, it's a little bit painful, but, uh, but really the pain only lasted like a week or okay. like a week or yeah. And are you on any estrogen blockers anymore? Or? No, no, because were I, you estrogen positive? No, you were, you were triple, triple negative, negative I right? Triple, I was triple negative, and so um, yeah, so that's why the having the estrogen blocker beforehand didn't help at all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so I've really so really for me, chemo was my only option. You know, once the chemo was done, then then that's it. And when you were on Arimidex, did you have any side effects? No. Okay. No. Because I know a lot of women, some of them have hot, well. Oh, hot flash. Oh, yeah. You didn't oh. have a uterus, though. Oh, yes. I had, you still I had, had them, right? Well, okay. Here, here's another little bit of a story about that. Um, so when I went through my ovarian cancer surgery, you're, I was put into immediate menopause. Yeah. Because I was still premenopausal when I, when I had the surgery. And I had horrible, horrible hot flashes. And so I asked the doctor about taking an estrogen replacement. And he was saying, he, he told me that, that in terms of outcomes for women with ovarian cancer, there's no, there's no difference whether you're on an estrogen replacement or not. So he left it up to me. And he gave me lots of 
literature to read and left it to be my decision. And I had the hot flashes so badly that I said, yes, I did want to. So I wore a patch, an estrogen patch. Okay. And a lot of the research said, you know, for women that just took it for five years or less and minimum dose. I took, so I thought I'll, I'll just do it for the minimum amount of time. So I did it. I was wearing the minimum dosage for, and so I still had the hot flashes, but at least it helped. And I was wearing this patch. And then when I you know, transferred here to Canada, there was one time when I was in with the oncologist and he had an intern there in a young woman in, in with him who was an intern and I could just see from the look on her face, she was horrified that I was on an estrogen replacement patch. And so then I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to stop these. <laughs> but I'm thinking, like, because he was like, he didn't seem to care either. But I could just tell from, she's like, what? You're on estrogen or something. Like, like I just thought, oh, well, maybe I should rethink this. <laughs> so, so, so then I stopped wearing the patch. And then I was put on the Arimidex, which is the exact opposite. opposite. So now there's like a zero estrogen in my body. And so then the hot flashes were horrible, yeah. uh, and I was they sent me to the hot flash clinic. I don't know if you knew there's such a thing, but there's no. something they call the hot flash clinic where they'll give you ideas on how to manage your hot flashes. But winter's um, a blessing, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and people would say, oh, they'll just lessen over time. And I have to say they have lessened quite a bit, except I still get them at night, you know, like or like maybe around eight o'clock at night, I'll just get a bad hot flash. And then maybe nine o'clock. And then when I go to bed in the middle of the night, I'll get one. Before that, at the beginning, I mean, I was getting them every 15 minutes. Every really? One after the other. It was awful. Yeah. So now it's just like maybe three a day or something. <laughs> just three a day. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you didn't have any, because I know when I was on Arimidex, because yeah, I was yeah. estrogen positive, I was getting depressed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I never. You didn't have any of that. Not, no, not really. The... Because the only time I really felt depressed was when I was... Diagnosed? No, not even that, no, not even that really. Oh, because here, going back again, right when I was diagnosed with the ovarian, which is kind of, I think, explains a little bit about why I was so, so late in getting to the doctor and getting diagnosed. My, my sister lost her husband, like, the same mm. month. Like, oh, he was young, 40 years old. And so I was with my sister... And spending a lot of time with her. And in the meantime, like I am getting, I'm expanding. I'm filling with this, this what they call ascites fluid. But I was sort of just ignoring my own, myself. Because I was with my sister. And I was grieving over my brother-in-law as well. And so then when I was diagnosed, my first thought was, well, at least I have a chance to say goodbye. He didn't have a chance to say mm. goodbye. you know. And so that was, to me, almost a comforting thing that, that at least... I know my time's come or something, you know, but, uh, you, you do think of those yeah, things though, yeah, when you, yeah. I don't know yeah. about you, but I, I do think of that stuff now. Hey, mm-hmm. well, I'm not, I'm not, you know, young mm-hmm. anymore. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not old either. I mean, no. I'm 63. I don't feel yeah. old, but it does make me think about, you know, the, yeah. that next phase, you yeah. know, yeah. so yeah. Well, God willing another 20 years. Yeah. Well, you know, lately, see, I have right now I have elderly parents and, right. My mother-in-law's elderly. There's such thing as living too long. Too. Yes. It's all kind of at that point where I'm like, geez, you really need to live just the right length. Of time. And what is that? You know, my dad lived to 96, and yeah. the last yeah. the last few years of his life yeah. were not yeah. really quite yeah. how he would have liked to right. have done it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you can't. There's nothing you can do about right. it, Deb. No. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. just... Yeah, and and also that, and that's why, like, I think having this gene mutation and having the you know cancer so many times that 
you just learn that you have to give it up. You just, like, there's nothing you can do about it. Whatever happens, happens. You know, if it comes back, I, I sort of resign myself to the fact that if I live long enough, my immune system will get weak enough. Something's going to get me. Yeah. And so you yeah, just sort of have to give it up and and live, right? Yeah. And exactly. live. And that's the, yeah. that's the, once you get through everything, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, so what am I going to do mm-hmm. to make this next experience of my life? Mm-hmm. As exactly. good as it possibly can be. Right. I, I'm going to get into Dragon Boat. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you got into it. Like, how did you uh, find out about it? And... Well, you know, I had seen, I'd, I'd been in like a couple of different places where they had Dragon Boat races going on. And it, the funny thing is I somehow had this in my head that Dragon Boating was only a breast cancer sport. I had no idea <laughs> other people did it. I just, I just thought only women with breast cancer did this. And so, um, the year I was going through my treatment, I saw a flyer at the gym about uh, they're putting together a breast cancer team, dragon boat team, and I remember thinking, oh, I would like to do that, but I just didn't feel like I would have the strength or you know to do it being in treatment. And so I thought, well, right. even though I talked to the young woman, she said, well, you could come out and you could just be the drummer, you could ride on the boat, you don't have to paddle or you know. And I just thought, well, that's not really fair, is it? to the team so I didn't do it the first year the second year again I saw the flyer in the gym and I said oh I would like to do that I should sign up well I just never got around to it I never made the phone call so the third year I see the flyer again at the gym and I said okay if I'm going to sign up for this I have to go home this moment and send the email now or I'm not going to ever do it and I did I just went home and I sent the email and then she sent me the information on on the first night, and the, and then it just went on from there. I joined the team. How many years so, ago was that? Uh, like three or four years ago. I think, uh, four years ago, I think. Four, yeah, because I think you're a year. I, you were a I, year ahead of me. Yes, and I, and then I skipped a year because yes. I was um, having some issues with high blood pressure. And okay. So, yeah, so I, I did it for two years, and then the team was getting ready to go to Italy, and we needed to have a medical release. I couldn't get a medical release. Is because, that why you didn't come? Because I had I had uh, high blood pressure, oh. and I couldn't get it under control in time to get the medical release. Oh. Um, and also, the, then the doctor was sending me to a cardiologist, and I had to go through lots of tests, but they were scheduled like so far apart, so far in advance that... Um, I didn't really feel comfortable going out and dragon boating without knowing what was going on with my heart. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, makes sense. So, um, yeah. So I waited until all of my tests were done, and it was in the middle of the summer. And and I think you know someone had told me, well, you can come and join us for the last month or two, but I just thought, nah, I'll wait, just wait till next year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Oh, We're glad you. to have you back. <laughs> so what have yeah. you been? So what did you discover about dragon boating? About yourself in dragon boating? Oh like, yeah. Yeah, well, dragon boating is a difficult, it's a much more difficult, I mean, I've heard women talk about how challenging it is, and how it gives them a sense of empowerment, you know, to be able to do it, and you don't really know, you hear that, but you don't really know what it is until you try it, and it is really super difficult. It's hard. It's hard, yeah, Yeah. it's it's harder than I ever imagined it would be. Me too. And so I had kind of mixed emotions my first, after the first year, like, do I really want to go back, because... Because in a way, it's not fun because it's so hard. <laughs> it's not paddling. It's yeah. not like rowing. Right? Yeah, right. It's like really paddling. Yeah, yeah. it's really hard work. And yeah. so, um, but then I, but but then you feel so good because you, it does. It gives you the, a, a sense that oh, you know, I can really do this. And 
um, it does take determination, perseverance, um, a, a lot of overcoming mental obstacles. Uh, it's, it's, so it's really good for you as mentally as well as physically. And so, um, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a very good sport. Yeah. 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 yeah it's tough sometimes. And, uh, but, but then again, like now that after having done it for three years, now I, I do finally feel like, oh, I can do it. Yes. So it's not, so I've kind of have gotten past that point of feeling like, oh, I can't do this. This is just too hard. And, you know, all those negative thoughts. Now, yeah. Now I feel like, oh, I can do this. And and now it's a, a matter of perfecting your technique and getting better at it. And, and yeah. what benefits? Yeah. So just yeah. talking about benefits for the dragon boating, like yeah. what have you yeah. found for yourself? Well, I just feel good to get that well, for one thing, I love being out on the water. Yeah. Like just in the middle of summer, on you know, twice a week, you're out there. You see the geese and the trees and this blue sky, and it's just beautiful being on the water. Yeah. I love it. There's the benefit of the camaraderie with your team members. Yeah. And like the regattas are fun, um, having a little bit of competition, although. In some ways, I really hate the actual race itself, but I like everything else about the program. <laughs> Love the flower ceremony. Yeah, yeah the flower ceremony is neat, and but but then just that that feeling after you have a practice, and oh, we had a couple of them this summer where there was one where we did a two k and. <laughs> Then it seemed like we turned around and did another one or something. <laughs> and you go home and you go, wow, that's pretty incredible. Like I would have never in a million years thought I could do that. Exactly. And it's all yeah. upper body strength. Yes. Well, you know, yeah. I didn't realize either how much lower body work yes, that is, it too. Is. Yeah, it's a whole you know, body workout. It's a whole body workout, just yeah. in a different way. Yeah. 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 I love the camaraderie. Like, yeah. I love that I can have a meltdown and everybody's okay yeah. with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I can have something horrible yeah. happen. Yeah. And I have yeah. support there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the that humor too. Yes. The yeah. humor around yeah. The humor around cancer. You know, mm-hmm. where oh, only yeah. cancer yeah. survivors can really find it funny. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, no nose hair. Or like yeah. the day when uh, she said, um, the length of your paddle should go from the ground up to your nipples and we all laughed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like that doesn't apply to some, some of us. <laughs> And then when she caught herself too, that was funny. Yeah, yeah. that's a good yeah. team. We're really lucky, I think, with the women that yeah. we have. Because, yeah, it's yeah. a great group of women. We yeah. really, we really are a great group of women. <laughs> so, right. do you have anything that you would like to share? Well, I think you know one of the reasons I wanted, I sort of wanted to do this with you, is I wanted to be able to share a little bit about the the BRCA mutation, how it, it predisposes people to both breast and ovarian and that and that the risk is higher than you might than I would have ever thought like it, it wasn't until after I had breast cancer that I started to think about it that I said well an 80% chance of getting breast cancer why wouldn't I have done something about it before that now right you know, it's like it's just that somehow it took a while to sink in so that's I guess one of the messages that you know for people who do have that mutation it might be really worth seriously considering prophylactic um, ovary removal of the ovaries or the um, fallopian tubes anyway and uh, and possibly breast reconstruction uh, breast yeah uh, breast removal but uh, such a personal choice right it's a a really hard thing to wrap your head around it is and then the other thing was I want to spread a message of hope 
Yes. Because, you know, having been diagnosed with stage four cancer, like I shouldn't be sitting here 13 years later. There's just no way I should be here. And then having triple negative breast cancer that's genetically induced five years later to say I have not had a recurrence is also a miracle. That is a miracle. So I don't know. I mean, there's, so there's hope. There is hope. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast Mm -hmm. with our team and with you, Mm -hmm. because I think we are an example of hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that we're not just sitting around being depressed and being the victim for the rest of our lives. Most of us, like are way beyond being victimized, you know, we yeah. are, we've moved on with our lives and we're doing things. And I thank you so much for doing oh, this with welcome. me. Yes. Thank you. You're, you're welcome.